Hello and welcome to a new episode of The Lowdown. Today I'm absolutely delighted to be joined by Kerry Bowley, PhD in Sports Psychology, ex-Swansea City and Cardiff City, former City Football Group Head of Coaching Support and up until recently Rangers First Team Coach. Kerry, welcome to the show. Thank you, it's a pleasure to be here. Kerry, as we begin with every guest and you're no different, can you please take us through your earliest football memory? Wow, okay. Um, earliest memory as a supporter would be Gary Mabbott lifting the FA Cup in 91, being a Spurs fan. Um, it kind of runs in the family. My granddad was a Tottenham fan, dad, and then myself. So that in terms of supporter. But probably in terms of being pitch side would be, as many of us do, grow up watching our, our dads play. Uh, we followed my dad everywhere around the Welsh football circuit. Um, and so... Yeah, they'd be my my fondest memories, really, being in the change room environment. That's where you learn most. Um, even as a real small child, that's where you learn most around those guys. And you know, he played with a lot of good players, but also ex-professionals and things as well. So that's probably where a lot of my learning in Bracken, a small town in Wales, that's probably where a lot of my learning started, really, and the love for the game. Um, that was that was my week, you know, gearing up towards the weekend and and being involved in that. So from a from a kind of um understanding the game, started to love the game. That's probably where they, they started both Tottenham Hotspur Football Club is the best and the worst thing that can happen to me on times, as is the case for most football fans to be fair. And then as I say, being around my dad and my, my dad playing and, and growing up around that really. And did you follow in your father's footsteps ever, Kerry, playing on that Welsh footballing circuit? Yeah, I did, um, particularly when I was younger. And then from there, um, was fortunate to be involved in some academy programmes, one at Cardiff City initially, and then Bristol Rovers in my later kind of youth years, played up to sort of reserve level, uh, as it was then. It was before EPPP came in and, and before the B team or under-23 model. So played up to a reserve level. And then uh, when I left the club, went into kind of semi-pro for a sh- short period of time. But I was always insistent on working in the game. So instead of spending my time playing, I tried to learn more about the game and spent my time doing other things that would hopefully help me into employment. Yeah, and it was quite the footballing upbringing and it really did inform what you did when you went to college. You know, you ended up graduating with a PhD in sports psychology. Yeah. Yeah, I think yeah that that a lot comes comes from my parents all the way through. You know, my dream was to be a player. I didn't make it like many. You know, there's there's such a small margin of those in academy football that do. Um, but they were always insistent on me focusing on education. I was always encouraged in school, um, and and I suppose that's that's where that kind of that desire and commitment, I suppose, to to master your craft came from. Um, but I also knew that you know every time I wa- I was going in to do something, I wanted to do it the best I could do it, and I'm still the same now. You know, no matter what it is, how big or small the project is, I want it. I want to do everything when I'm when I'm in, involved in it, and and that's why in the end, you know, the PhD was when I was going in to do an undergrad. I was part way through my undergrad, and I was like, yeah, I've got to do more because I was never going to be blessed with being an ex-player and the games that come with that and the experiences that come with that around the pro game. So I always thought I'd have to do more. I have to do something extra in order to get me a foot at the table and an opportunity to speak to people and to develop a level of credibility and continue to master my craft and who I am and things. So 
that's where that desire and, and commitment to education came from. Um, and it's continued now, to be fair. Since I've left Rangers, yeah, I've already done two short courses um, that will hopefully help me be better at what I do. Uh, and I'm continuing to try and learn off people and through conversations and uh, interactions like this and other things to try to always be better. So, yeah, that's where the, that's where the kind of the start point of all of that and the motivation for it comes from, really. And you speak about having unique selling points. I mean, your unique competitive advantage, of course, Kerry, was having that background and interest in sports psychology. And, you know, in preparation and advance for this podcast and previous podcasts from a few years back, spoke about that journey about becoming a pracademic. I mean, what did these mental skills look like when they were being put into practice on the coaching circuit from yourself? Okay, so it's interesting. So my, my start point with psych is because that's the discipline I struggled with most as a player. So that that was something I I could relate to it, and and I think this is this is quite common from what from what I'm picking up from speaking to others with a real interest in psychology, is that the desire to learn came as a result of some of the things I struggled with, um, and didn't at the time the the academy system wasn't set up, wasn't geared up that there was that support. You know, I think sports science was just starting. Um, but there was never that much support around psych unless you were fortunate enough to be coached by somebody with a psych background or a teaching background that really understood some of the nuances in there. Um, but that was that was quite rare. So that, that's where it started from. And, and then for me, what does it look like? Well, the biggest thing is about developing the person. I think some of the time what you know the mistakes we can make is around focusing too much on the player and not enough on the person. And that's something from my experiences that that's what that's taught me, but more than anything, the PhD journey taught me that the importance of understanding who the person is developing them as people first. And then as a result of that, you develop them as a footballer, but the, the footballer part is the context specific element. Whereas that that's changing, that's ever changing with performance naturally, you know, whether, whether they're performing really high or we're having difficulties, challenges, experiencing adversity that's always changing the player is always going to change whereas the person tends to be a lot more stable in terms of who they actually are and I think this is this is very much similar with coaches as well you, you get to like who they are when they're on the touchline and you know you hear lots about wearing multiple hats and you know different masks or whatever you want to call it in terms of being different people depending on the environment well, that, that's why, for me, the, the most stable one is the person, who they actually are, what they actually believe in. And so that's where I tend to spend a lot more of my time, trying to invest time in people, understand who they are as people first. And then afterwards, it, it provides the opportunity to unlock potential from a performance perspective. Uh, but obviously, that means that sometimes you have to go beyond the performance environment, which is not always easy, because it means you have to invest more time um, and when we were, certainly when I think about my early days of coaching, people would always discourage going outside of the realms of the player. So, you know, don't get too invested in the person bit and, and what they are away from sport. But actually for me and everything that I've learned through being around professional football now is that that's the most important part to understand who they are away from the pitch is probably more important than what, what we understand when they're on the pitch mm -hmm. because a lot of the answers to the challenges and a lot of the so solutions exist away from the environment. You know, when you, when you start to think about social support network and the value of 
the support network around them, um, particularly from a site perspective and, and overcoming adversity. Well, you can only do that if you really understand what their support network is. Um, and you know, when, you, when you think about it in terms of young kids moving to a new culture, new environment, new country, all that kind of stuff, what, what's the support network going to be around them? And if they don't have it off the pitch, then we have a duty of care as a club to make sure that we support them in that way. Because until we have a level of stability in the personal life, it's very, very difficult to get any level of consistency of performance or behaviour on the pitch and on, on the training ground. So so I think that that's always my start point away from. And the only way you can do that is by investing time. I always say that the most precious thing you can give anyone is your time. Um, and that, for me, was not just in a football environment or a sports environment in terms of elite sport, but I was the same when I worked at the FA. I tried to be available for all the guys that worked under me across the region. The same when I was in academia at USW, be available for students, make sure that they, they were supported um, through their journey and try and invest as much time one-to-one -one, small group as possible because it's the, the best way for me in terms of learning, and this is what all of it is in terms of how we unpick all of it, is be as individual as possible, as specific as possible, as often as possible. And they're the kind of three three kind of branches, if you like, that I try to try to abide by. But then when coming back more into like after giving the context of what you said about what does this look like? Well, on the pitch it looks it looks like um the the per start again with the person bit in terms of what does it mean. So understanding terms, I think is one of the most important things, particularly when working with young players, because we can get really carried away with the language that we use when we're coaching them. Um, that makes sense to us, but it might not make sense to them. So again, that ability to connect with them, understand uh, them, what do they know, what do they understand, what do they um, perceive something to be. So if I was to use a certain word, emotional control, what does that mean to them? That's the most important thing because it's their learning. It's not my learning. So, you know, you might have within a squad of 16, 16 different versions of what that emotional control is that you have to first understand and then bring some level of commonality in the way that you educate so that, you know, because they're not always necessarily going to have the correct definition, perception or whatever of what it might be. There might be some misconceptions. So, but then it gives you a chance to educate around it. And then what you have to remember when you take that to the pitch is that everybody's learning something different everybody's unique in terms of what they're learning, how they're learning and, and that, that kind of thing. So then you start to understand, right, well, within that network or within that kind of environment, the coaching environment, what does a social support network look like there? And obviously there'd be yourself as a coach, you'd have other coaches, maybe sports scientists and whoever in your environment, but then it, it's the peer network as well um, and not forgetting the importance of, of the peers and how they can learn from each other. So how I try to frame it is, What's the message? And the message would be around what that psychological skill is. So what's their understanding of it? And let's get clarity over what is it? How are we going to reinforce the message? So through the training practice. So what things does practice design elicit, which it can. Sometimes you can create that environment around practice. Your interventions are really key. And then what's each individual coach or support staff's role during the session to reinforce key messages? That also is is really important. So let's get a level of responsibility, accountability for it. And that could be 
leading the full session in terms of what that psychological skill is, or it could be what I call ghost coaching, where you pick three, four players that you're really focusing in on through the session, and it's more concurrent feedback in your approach and, and obviously making it more specific to the position and, and the situation that are experiencing in the game. And then the final bit after reinforce is transfer. So for me, for it to be a learned skill, and this comes from my PhD in life skill development, there has to be transfer from football back to life, back into society, back into work, education, whatever it is that they do. So then it's about supporting players to transfer that. What does it look like? What's your intentions going to be post-session around where you're going to try and practice this skill in a different environment? And then you close a loop on it in the next session where they come back in and you can start to understand what was it that you tried? How did you get on with it? What was the what were the learnings from it? What were the challenges of it? And then it becomes an ongoing process in terms of um, how you educate around the psychology. So you don't isolate. In my experience, and my kind of philosophy wouldn't be to isolate the psych, not to have loads of workshops in, in the classroom and things. It needs to be real and it needs to be around the pitch. Um, but framing it through a message, reinforce it and transfer it, they're some of the ways that I've seen most effective practice. Sorry, it's been a long answer. No, it's it's brilliant and terrific insight, and it's just raised. A, I've had a lot of glow ups in my head, Kerry, and one of them being like, I mean, speaking to people such as yourself regarding sports psychology. I mean, a lot of it, I think, wraps around the identity of the player too, and even one step removed when we're speaking about academy football because it's a disdain to call them high performers. You know, even more so. You know, instead of high performance players, we should first you know, acknowledge them as high-performance people. Yeah. I mean, in your honest opinion, I mean, I mean, I'm reflecting now, but how much of it is it about these kids kind of running away from eradicating feelings of insufficiency rather than living in that state of abundance? Because it's yeah. it's a case of, the you know, it's the, the big chase, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And, and look, sometimes, you know, there are certain things in elite sport that it's difficult to get away from, right? So that, that element of competition, which could create the uncertainty and, and can create some of those thoughts and difficult, challenging um, experiences along the way. So I think you can't eradicate all of it. Um, and the nature of it is when they get towards the, the top end for those that are successful, they have to be able to compete. So, you know, whilst when you, when you start to look at motivational climate and create a mastery, climates more often than ego performance climates maybe uh, there's still a need for that ego performance competitive nature climate because that that's what the game is um, and not just the game that's life you know when you go to a job interview away from sport and football you're competing to get the job so you know if you're working in sales you're definitely competing in the future so so I think we, we don't want to take away from that we have to embrace what it is um, but what we don't need to do is add extra layers of competition and, and things where, where it's not needed. So, you know, I think being honest first um, and accepting that it's okay that this environment's going to be tough in, in some ways because of what it is and just the nature of it. Every kid that enters an academy system, every kid that starts a grassroots or majority when they start a grassroots want to end up playing in the game they all you know a lot of them i shouldn't say all because some of them don't they play for different reasons but um a lot of the young kids that play girls and boys have these aspirations of being 
global superstars um, in the game. And you know, that, that's the dream, isn't it, in many ways. What our responsibility is, whether that's at grassroots level, academy level, first team level even, is to ensure that what we do is we help them to become better people because that is totally in our control. Whether we have an influence on the person or not, that's in our control. Whether they become professional footballers or not, especially you know before you get to first team level, that's not really in our control um, because you know, we can help it, we can support it, we can try and create the best environment and facilitate that process. But there are so many things that happen along the way that will determine whether or not somebody turns professional and has a, a great career in the end. So, so I think what we can do is create the best environment where um, success, however you measure success, is inevitable. Um, and that, for me, more than anything, is about helping people to become better people and giving them the skills, which is, again, what I was passionate about through my PhD, the skills to cope with life. It's football's the vehicle, but what we're doing is helping people to thrive in life. Um, and if we can do that, then I think that you know the benefits from a, not just a mental health, but you know, general well-being and things will be will be uh, extremely supportive, extremely helpful. And that's where I think football can play a really, really key part, and not just football, but other other elite sports as well. Because we have to remember they're not elite sports people; um, they're young kids that love playing the game, that are in a high performance, whatever that is, environment. Um, and for me, the focus needs to be on learning. Everything that I try to do is about learning. How do people learn? And then I, I, I keep going back to it, but how does this child learn versus that child, or this player versus that player, this person versus that player, person? Because they're all different. Um, and our duty is to make sure that we create an environment and create opportunities for everybody in our environment to learn and to get better. Um, and that, that needs to be, for me, the focus, even at first team level even at first team level it's that individual focus is still really important and was through everything we did and um, in my time at city football group with the coaches i worked with because i preached about it all the time it's fantastic though it takes me back to an earlier conversation that i had with a previous guest dave redden formerly of the fa as well you know what are you doing to make success inevitable in your own environment and indeed there Kerry, you brought up your time at city football group I mean, a lot of these early formative experiences would have provided you with a steady foundation becoming the head of coaching support at CFG. How global was the extent of that role? Um, <laughs> it was global. Uh, it's a fantastic organisation and lot, lots of people will have lots of things to say about multi-club ownership and those types of models. But, you know, I've, I've experienced some of the very best. So um, you're right, the foundations of what I believe in and the foundations of what I do in practice naturally were there prior to stepping into that role but what it allowed me to do I learned so much because of the number of countries that you're working in at one at one time so you know when you when you consider working across 11 countries I think it was when I left um, and a real I would say a real focus for me on eight or nine of them like every week so that gives you an idea of, of the breadth of the role if you like um but I would have to spend a minimum of eight or nine years if I was to get one year's worth of experience in any of those countries where I didn't I didn't need to do that. I was able to uh, experience that in one go. The multiple challenges that come with it, uh, the cultural challenges that naturally come with it, language barriers, all of those types of things that can become um, in some ways um, restrictive of learning. And what I had to try to do was find a way to educate and help others educate 
regardless of culture, regardless of nationality, um, whether it becomes anything around language. And, you know, we have to find a universal way in lots of things whilst then contextualizing specific things for them as well. So, yeah, great opportunity to learn. Um, working with coaches, sporting directors, sports scientists, all, all the multidisciplinary team, but also agents around the world, understanding league structures and the various rules and regulations that govern different leagues with salary caps or not, as the case may be. Some working in the UEFA, some under CONCACAF and you know, lo lots of different uh, Commonwealth and lots of different kind of federations as well and governing bodies. So, yeah, an invaluable experience um, and one I'll always look fondly on. I mean, at the time you spoke about a philosophy being in place as well within CFG and it was your job at the time to build a methodology. I mean, I'm just thinking now, Kerry, with all those different departments, be it uh, coaching, sports science, recruitment, talent ID. I mean, for what is now, I think, 12 clubs throughout the world in 11 different countries, as you spoke about, how do you keep people, how do you keep people aligned in such a globalized high performance team, I mean, you speak about, you know, putting together un a universal bespoke mythology. Yeah, I, th I think that the start point is that it wasn't my job to make sure all disciplines were aligned. Uh, it was to an extent in terms of continuing to try to align practice with and across and support and whatever. But there were there were specific people in charge of the sports science and performance support element, the data science element. And talent id but the methodology should um go across all obviously because that's the thing that we're that we're really striving to to focus on and use to inform our practice and guide our practice and and underpin our practice every day so the start point was there with me and then it was about how i worked with others um, and educated around it particularly when it came to the scouts talent id did a lot of work educating around the methodology position profiles characteristics all that kind of stuff um, but i think the the first thing is that it's got to be usable it's got to be understandable i see a lot of presentations on methodologies and it's not to say this is wrong it just doesn't work for me where there's like principles sub principles sub sub principles sub 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 principles and i'm like wow hang on a minute how do you start to utilize this thing in practice and how the players use it. So everything that I wanted to do was, again, governed by learning. How do people learn? How do we chunk the information? How do we layer the process that, that we're going to use and uh, utilize and, and deliver this information? So that the end goal has to be that players become better at making decisions. So at the heart of the methodology was decision-making. They have to be better at that. If they're not better at making decisions and the speed at which they can make those decisions as well as the accuracy of it, then we're not we're not educating and we're not developing footballers because that's what we know at the top level. It, the ones that the best players are the ones that make the best decisions the majority of the time. So that's that's something that we had to focus on. And then from there, obviously it has to be holistic because movement is not is not solely around physical. It's also the mental element of it, the psychological element of it. But there's also the execution that comes into it, which is the technical part and the, the tactical understanding of where it went. So it had to be holistic, but you have to rely on other expertise on times to bring bring the right people around the table and, and rely and trust on them to develop certain practitioners in certain ways. But we could never get away from what the methodology was because we could never get away from what the game style was. The unique game style as City have got, that was, that was a non-negotiable. 
Um, every team had to try and play that way. And obviously you get people at different stages and they're learning understanding of that. Um, and the leagues dictate in some ways how well you can do that or not, as the case may be, particularly in the early part of owning a club. Because if you have a very transitional league, you're going against the grain in many ways, which can help, can work. But you have to be aware of there are so many different threats from opposition to what we might face in other countries and other leagues because of the nature of how that league works. So, um, so they were they were some of the challenges. But yeah, keeping people aligned is not easy, as you can imagine. The organisation's massive, um, and a lot of top football clubs are now. There's a hell of a lot of staff, and sometimes you, it's not to say I'm right, but sometimes you wonder if like small, lean. And agile is sometimes a better way to go because it means that you can keep on top of the key messaging um, and you can ensure that there's real clarity in approach, there's alignment through the approach and there's responsibility, but also autonomy. And I think the two of those have to come together um, in a way that we in a way that we work. I think, like it's fair to say that there would be advantages and disadvantages to having such economies of scale. Um, I know briefly we touched about player well-being, but what about coach well-being, Kerry? Because a previous guest on the show, uh, Cody Royal, episode 64, I believe. Okay. He's, Cody's great. He speaks about um, his belief that coach optimization, you know, it's the biggest barrier to success in team sport. Um, in your three or so years at City Football Group, dealing with a whole host of coaches from all over the world, I mean, upon reflection, what were the biggest threats to coach well-being? Um, well, the obvious one is the pressure to win. Um, every coach wants to win and you have you know, multiple eyes on you at all times. You have your organisation, you have your players every day, um, the rest of the staff, but also obviously the fans, the outside world, the media and, you know, each, I suppose there's levels to that in terms of exposure that the league gets and, and the interest in the league. And you know, the, the further you get, um, along that spectrum, if you look at the, let, let's just say the Premier League or the top five leagues in Europe being um, the most difficult, challenging in that way because of media interest and because of fan interest and and just general interest around the world, then I think that that become, becomes huge. Um, the external part can become huge, and what you have to try to do is help them to internalize everything or as much as they can and focus on the things that they can control and try and block out some of the noise which is not easy um but it exists everywhere there's always going to be noise and it's part of it will come with the territory i get that um, and i've actually read quite a lot recently of managers talking about this where very few clubs offer support in 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 way of how do i help the coach to be the best they can be and that isn't by just saying it's by doing at the same time um, and one of the things for that is complete alignment. So the one way that you can alleviate a stressor is to ensure that the alignment of the players that are being recruited work with the way that the coach wants to operate with the system and what he's been what he's been recruited for. So the style of play, you know, it's it's that's one of the the big stressors that I see. You you'll always get it. You'll always get the coach and the head of talent ID or recruitment like that if. If things are not going well, um, it's natural, right? It's like, oh, they didn't sign me the right players or he's not using the players in the right way. So that that's always something that you have to manage. But I think the, the more alignment you get in that, and it's not to say that the coach dictates because every club's different. Coach can come into a system knowing what that ecosystem is and what it works like. 
<coughs> excuse me, but it, it's about understanding, right, what does this game style look like? What What's the way of play going to look like? And as a result, what do we need players to be when they come in? Um, one of them things will be around how they learn. Understanding how they learn the players that come in the building is really important and can be a significant role for talent ID beyond what happens on the pitch. So I think that that's that's one thing. But then afterwards, it's about open and honest conversations, um, challenge and support, you know, facilitative environments of challenge and support. And I think you know that's why we place so much emphasis on getting the person right when recruiting coaches. And I always do. I always try to do that because that's what's that's what's going to get you furthest, in my opinion. If you've got a person who's willing, receptive, open to learn, they're going to get you further than an expert that's already there at the moment, but believes in a way and only a way, and won't won't come away from that and won't open his mind to anything else or her mind to anything else. So that's where I kind of focus my effort um, more more than anything, and it was part of my role to help them on and off the pitch. So you know phone calls all sorts of times, um, understanding what's going on in their life as well as understanding what's going on in their professional life and just trying to be there, help, listen, um, and give them give them an avenue uh, of someone outside the club a little bit to help and support fresh, fresh ideas, I guess. And Kerry, I mean, like you yourself, I mean, you dipped your own, you dipped your feet in the in at the deep end quite recently with your own spell with Rangers in the first team. And I mean, I was just reading this an article in preparation in advance of this podcast. Um, one you did with Sky Sports, in fact, last week, and it was interesting what you spoke about being the dynamic was that the challenge is that the quality of your work doesn't necessarily relate to what you get out of it in first team football. I mean, since leaving the helm last November, last December, what have been your reflections? Yeah, I think that first team football is always what it is. And one thing you're guaranteed is that at some point you're going to be leaving a role. That's that's the nature of it now. Um, so I think, you know, there's always, I always try to think about what are the things that we can do better? What, what could I have done better? Um, how would I have been better prepared? But what I always come back to is that this... This experience for me was was always something that was going to just help me on my journey to be where I want to be in the end. So I've always tried in my career so far to experience as many different things as possible because those many different things are going to help in becoming a technical director or sporting director in the future. You know, experience across all the different departments of which the first team is one. So I try, try to take as much as I could, help as much as I could in that in that time. But I guess my my reflections more than anything will be on um, what what are the things I've learned from being in that environment about managing pressure myself, um, about seeing coaches and other practitioners in a different way to how I, I viewed them at City because I was with them every day, which was different to the ones I worked with across the group. So you notice the change in them um, in different situations. And that, for me, has given me far more knowledge, experience, insight now that even over a short period of time that will help when hopefully eventually I arrive in one of those positions in senior leadership to be able to empathize with and to be able to help and support, which I think is is really important um, in any any real environment where you are a senior leader or senior exec is to be able to help support, guide and facilitate the learning of your staff every day. 
Um, and, and so they, they'd be the main things I've taken from it, if I'm honest, as well as it being a fantastic experience working for a huge club. And, you know, had the fortune of being around the Champions League, even though it was a, it was a difficult campaign for us in the end. But, you know, I classed myself as fortunate to have been there. Um, but yeah, it, it, I'll take the stuff away that's going to inform what I do going forward. And, and it's given me an even stronger view of, of what, what I want to be and what I think I can be in the game. Um, and that's what I'll continue to work to try to try to achieve now. And you spoke about it there. I mean, with that sporting director role, we spoke, I mean, off camera before this podcast with about Dan Ashworth speaking about the 360 skill set, being able mm-hmm. to drop in a boardroom and then being able to have that coaching hat on, on the field. And how do you envisage the future of the sporting director role evolving, Gary? Well, I think you've been various iterations of it at the moment in the game and and Dan's one that you mentioned there which you know I would consider to be one of the ones that do the role as I see it um, in terms of being the real connector of all departments overseeing all departments don't have to be the expert in everything but having a uh, an insight of and an understanding of that you can bring it all together because essentially what you're there to do is the medium and long-term future of the club, you look after that and you safeguard that. But you're also there to create a high-performance environment. And the high-performance environment involves everybody from technical coaches, first-team academy, sports science, data data analysts and data science, whatever you want to call that, performance analysis. It's medical sport, bringing that together, operations together. So I think that that's how I see it. Now, what I don't, what I don't get the, the privilege of doing, obviously, is deciding what that looks like in the future, nor should I. Uh, who am I to tell the game what it should look like? And you see various iterations now. You see some clubs who sport and who look for sporting directors who are traders, player traders, um, and, and that's what, what they want. You'll see some that are really um, fascinated by the data part, the data insights, and that's grown arms and legs very quickly. You see some of them now becoming sporting directors because clubs believe in data and they want someone who can drive data. What what I think is most important for anybody that wants to be at that level, and this is what I'm trying to tell myself now, um, and look, I'm not the expert at it. I haven't been a sporting director with 10 years of experience, but this is where I'm trying to take my journey is try and be who I am and not be something else. So try and educate myself as much as possible, hence why I've done the short courses I've done and what I continue to do now that I'm out of the game a little bit. Um, but I also think that teaching is is one of the most powerful ways to learn because you have to understand something differently when you're trying to teach it. So if you're just reading and taking on board. So again, I've gone back to doing as much of that stuff as I can with all the organizations that have given me the opportunity that I'm grateful for to travel around Europe and around the world teaching, um, which, which helps me. Uh, connect with new people but I'm also I believe in the model in terms of as I've explained it in terms of the one who is kind of the leader across all those organi- all those departments and bringing the departments together in order to create a high performance environment an environment where success is inevitable as I would as I would usually say so as a result of it that's the journey I'm going to continue to go on I'm going to continue to try to learn as much as I can about each individual department without trying to be the expert and I stress that because it's impossible to be the expert at everything, but have enough learning, understanding, experience within each department that I can create a facilitated environment for each where you can challenge and support. 
Um, and that will always be my way, trying to support people that work under me. Um, I don't see it as hierarchical in that way. Obviously, structurally it is, but I don't operate in that way. But what I want to do is help everyone grow. So I want to get better every day, and I want the staff that work with me to want to get better every day. And it's my duty to ensure that I provide a platform and an, and an environment where they are getting better every day through being challenged and through being supported. So that's no different to when I was part-time head of youth in an academy in Wales to then going and working at the FA, to going and working in higher education in academia and to working in City Football Group in football and, and being at Rangers. That, that's what I wanted to do. I always want to try to help people to get better um, and in doing so, always try to push to be better myself. Uh, so that that's how I see it. Um, but as I say, you know, it's not not everyone's going to see it that way. And some want more singular expertise as a sporting director. I see it as someone who looks after the long-term future of the club by the decisions that they make um, and by bringing people together and bringing all that expertise together to create a thriving environment. That's how I see it. And it's fair to say, I mean, your career today, Kerry, has given you that rigorous apprenticeship. What will stand you in good stead for eventually when you do get that sporting director role. But like, what I'm very enthused to learn more about is people such as Mike Rigg, Andre Zanata, top elite sport directors that have been on the show. I'm always curious as to see where their eyes, where their ears are headed. I mean, looking outside of football, looking outside of sport, is that something which you've done yourself? I mean, we've spoken about, obviously, early academia studies and whatnot. But what are you doing now currently to look outside that football environment? Yeah, um, it's always, actually, when I was building what we call our coaching matrix in terms of how you put good teams together. It's something I did. I, I reached out to a number of sports, American sports, rugby, obviously being the one that's very close in terms of nature of to football in the UK, as you'll know. We spoke to the likes of Stuart Lancaster, Eddie Jones. Um, along the way, they, they were very helpful. Danny Kerry with uh, GB Hockey. I spoke to Danny around his approaches and we exchanged ideas there. But, it's a continual thing for me. Um, I went to work in netball for a period of time for Welsh netball to understand what it's like to go into a sport where you don't have the sporting expertise um, and what that put myself in that position. Um, and that strengthened my belief that you need to learn the sport. If you go into work in that sport, you need to learn the sport. Um, the sport doesn't change to you and it shouldn't. And then when I think about my time at the city, the country doesn't change to you. The culture doesn't change to you. You have to adapt to the culture when you go into a new place. So there's there's a few things going on here in terms of adapt to the culture of the country and, and obviously the organization and whatever uh, where you go, but then also adapt to what the sport is and, and what happens in the sport at the minute before you can start to try and evolve it. Because I think one of the worst things is going in when you think I'm going to change it from day one without understanding what, what it is that you're going to change it. Um, because it's easy to have preconceived ideas. Um, and I get that that sometimes takes a little bit longer, but it takes as long as you're willing to invest time and energy in learning the sport. And and so that that's what I try to do there. But also even further afield than, than just elite sport, um, try to reach out to people that work in the business world and have conversations with them about how they lead, how they manage their teams, um, the challenges that they face day to day, because... What you find quite often is contextually they're very different, but the challenges are the same because everyone's working with people and everyone's managing people. 
And people are complex. We are human beings. We're complex people. We're complex creatures. So most people's challenges are are the same in terms of the pressures that they have. You know, whether it's from the board, whether it's from ownership, um, your boss, maybe the outside world, depending on the industry and the external influences. But mo- most of them are the same. It's just contextually what that thing is wrapped up is different because it's in football or it's in rugby or it's in business or it's in finance or it's in education. So I, I try to just see it as leaders and try and reach out to people who lead at the moment, but also those that are being led by some inspirational people or who I consider to be inspirational as well. Because as I said right at the start, the way that we get it right, in my view, is we get it right for the people that we're trying to teach and educate and, and learn. And that goes multiple layers through an organization. But to really find out about the leader, I find it insightful to speak to those that they lead because they'll give me an idea of what is it that they create for you? How do they support your learning? What What's the environment like to work under them? So I try to take as much as I can from that as well and use that as building blocks to some of the things that can inform my practice. So I'll always be as receptive as I can be that's what I try to be. Um, other people will tell me whether I am or not, but that's what I try to be. Um, but that that journey of trying to meet people, um, connect with people, is something that I pride myself on. And uh, you know, the vast majority of people, I've tried to do it to everyone that reaches out on LinkedIn or any social media through direct messages. I respond to, even if I can't help at that time. I try to respond to, and that's just something little that I try to do all the time. Um, because you never know. You never know where that initial conversation can go to. But similarly, it's out of respect because I've been in that place and I am in that place constantly where I'm trying to reach out to people to have conversations to learn. Not because I think they're going to give me something, but I want to learn. So when others do it, then, you know, it's, it's, I'd think it's respectful to always try to respond to people. And I get it a lot from students, and I've been in that place as well. You know, you, you're reaching out as a student who hasn't really entered the world of work yet, um, and they they do it quite a lot. And I always try to pride myself on responding, so um, at least having a conversation via message, even if it's not further than that. Um, and that's something that being responsive, I, I value greatly. Um, those you meet on the way up, you'll see them on the way down for sure. Um, and you know, that's just something that. Again, my parents instilled in me is not to forget where you've come from. And if you can help someone, help someone. Fantastic, Kerry, really and truly, because, you know, it's bringing for, the conversation full circle, you know, beginning with your beginning and ending with your upbringing. You know, what became initially a quest to get into the game has become a journey of lifelong learning, you know, and it's not necessarily creating better players or better coaches for that matter, but one step further and far removed, but even more important, creating you know, better peak, better conditions for these people to thrive. And we touched upon it there at the very end. I mean, people that are looking to get into the game. And, you know, there may be something about your own pathway which appeals to certain people listening to the show. I mean, for those people listening that would love to thread a similar path to yourself, Kerry, I mean, what would be the one bit of advice you'd have for them? I don't want this to come across as in any way arrogant or, you know, that, I've done this better than anyone because there's so many that do this. But the single biggest thing that's got me to where I am is work ethic. Without a doubt. Because 
you know, you, you get it. People talk about talent and gifted and that kind of thing. And yeah, you know, everyone has a gift and everyone's talented to some degree. But I've, ne- I've never been, you know, in school academically. I wasn't like a real high flyer by any stretch. I was probably middle of the road. As a player in the academy system, I was middle of the road. I was just quite average in that way. So what I've then tried to do is go, right, I'm going to have to work. And, you know, my journey through academia was tough. It, it wasn't. It wasn't by any stretch easy. Um, it was tough. I had to work harder than a lot of other people might have had to work in order to to get to any sort of level of recognition and, and achievement. So that is the one. The one. The single most. Because when you graduate, and I'm sure you you have kind of seen this and, and experienced it maybe yourself. It's hard to get a job in the game in your first the first full time job is tough um and so many give up and go into other industries before it gets real um you know i worked for years as a volunteer and i didn't get paid until after first my first job in the game coaching was when i had my phd when i got paid when i actually received any money for for coaching everything else up to that point was was all voluntary and it was multiple hours a week so you have to also have that that desire and that commitment and dedication that you're going to be patient with it as well um, and believe that if you continue to work hard, you continue to try to connect with the right people and try to learn from all your experiences, that in the end, the opportunity will come. Absolutely fantastic. Kerry, I definitely put this down as one of my favourite conversations to date. Thanks so much for coming on. No, you're welcome. My pleasure. And you know, if I can help at all in the future, just let me know.